Well, folks, you know you're in for a treat when you hear that tune because it's time for another week of the Rec Poker Podcast. Thanks for joining me here on Monday night on YouTube. I have the best freaking job in the world because I get to hang out here every Monday night and talk with my poker friends about this fantastic game that we all love so much. My name is Jim Reed. I'll be your host tonight. I'm Bluffsterini in the Home Game Club. And while we've still got Twitter, I'm at RecPokerJim on Twitter. And if you want to find out more about me and the rest of the Wrecking Crew, you just got to head on over to Rec.Poker slash crew, and you can find out all about those smiling faces but don't take it from me. You can listen up and hear from a few of them right here tonight on the show. Well, I'm Chris Jones. You can find me 5v5 on threads uh, or 5x5 uh, in the Poker Stars home game. And I'm Joe Coolis. You can find me at Joe Cool PhD on Twitter, cool with a K, or Elvita11 on the home game. And I'm John Somsky. I am Poker Geek MN everywhere. And I'm Keith Brandt, and that's Monkey System Everywhere. And I'm Kim Kilroy. I'm PatVet33. Most platforms, Fergie56 in the home game, most of the time. <laughs> that's right. Kim's a, a, a jet-setting, poker-traveling champion, and you never know where she's going to be calling in from from week to week. But we've got a packed house here for the forums edition, which is just how I like it. Um, and of course, we, I'd be remiss if I didn't thank uh, the Running Aces Hotel Racetrack and Casino, uh, because without their support, we probably wouldn't be here right now. Most of what we do here is free. And so we're so appreciative of their support. And uh, by the time people are listening to this, we'll just have wrapped up our last uh, rec poker road trip to Running Aces. And I'm sure we had a great time, but I can't. <laughs> I don't know exactly what we got up to yet, but I know it was a blast. Um, so this is the forums edition of the podcast. Uh, like I mentioned, it's August, and the theme of the month in August is uh, early stages of tournament play. So we're going to have a general conversation about that aspect of tournament play, strategic adjustments, um, what you can do, what you can't do. And um, this is just one, another one of Chris Jones's themes of the month. Every month we have a different learning theme here at Rec Poker. Um, so Chris... Uh, you you run a lot of the uh, learning material that we do here, and you've kind of stacked this curriculum from month to month of different themes. Uh, we're entering kind of like a new chapter here in tournament stages. So tell tell us a little bit about why you chose to start here and uh, what's so important about early tournament stages. Well, I mean, we've, we've talked about um, these kind of things off and on at various sort of things. We've talked about ICM. We've talked about, oh, there's certain things. We've talked about final tables. But what we're going to do for our next five deep dives, so the next five months, is we're going to march our way through um, various tournament stages um, and really focus on some elements of play, what kind of things, what kind of dynamics change, how we can make adjustments as players, um, and I think it's really important to recognize that those things happen, that it's not just uh, there's there's sort of like three things sort of like going on at the same time when we show up at a poker table. There's obviously the immediate kind of thing of like, what kind of cards do I have? What kind of, you know, how does it interact with the board and all that kind of stuff? There's also what kind of players show up around me and how are they approaching uh, their style of play? But I think there's also this sort of like thing that I think 
maybe is less some players are very cognizant of it and i think others are maybe less so um that's governing how we how we kind of play and that is what stage of the tournament are we at what kinds of what are some of our incentives and goals and what kind of things are pushing us to make different kinds of decisions based on where we're at in a tournament so we're going to look at that piece by piece uh through the next few months yeah i'm always uh struck by kind of this tension early in tournaments because you have a lot of chips this is when stacks are deep and um so that i think inclines some players to play more speculative hands uh but it also is a time when you know you don't really want to bust or uh, well actually let's unpack that a little bit because i think some people feel like they don't want to bust uh early in the tournament although i kind of feel like if you're if you're not going to run up a stack and make the money anyway then I'd kind of rather bust a little earlier rather than put in all those hours and then bust, you know, a few levels before before the money gets in. Can we talk just generally, Chris, um, when it comes to like strategic adjustments? Would you say that you should be playing like looser or wider uh, earlier in the tournaments? Or is there is there a, a different way of thinking about the way that you should be playing in that stage? I wouldn't really use the words looser i would use the words different we're we're Hmm. um we're setting ourselves up to play more post-flop poker um where there's going to be multi-street hands much more often so we need to be cognizant of the kinds of hands we're bringing into those sort of environments right and like what that means is um, yeah, our range is, you know, maybe, maybe we're going to be, a, we're going to be a little bit looser, but what it ultimately means is that we're going to, those kind of things are going to change. Like we're going to be more open to things like, um, uh, seven, six of diamonds or six, five of diamonds, uh, when we're this deep, um, or, or set mining becomes much more a part of like the kinds of things that we might try to do. Uh, in these early stages versus like when we're getting down to it on a um, a bubble and there's like stacks are shorter and and ICM is kind of coming into play. So it's it's less about, I think, should I play tighter? Should I play looser? It's more about what kinds of hands do I feel like I can go on a, on a play multi-street uh, in a very deep stack way. It's a lot like thinking about how you might approach a cash game. Uh, in some ways, um, there's still tournament elements that we have to consider, but there, it's certainly closer to cash game play than other parts of, of kind of tournament play. That's how I'd, and, answer. I'd I'd be curious how anyone else would answer that. Yeah. And I'd love to hear from some other folks on the panel here. Um, it does sound like it's going to be re- going to be looking for hands that benefit from a, a, a larger SPR or a stack to pot ratio that you won't be able to play later in tournaments. Uh, Kim, you first and then uh, Keith, I think. Yeah. Um, one of the things that we went over in at the Solve for Y Academy when I was there recently this year was that you don't want to play hands as much in multi-way pots like seven, six suited, five, six suited, because you can just get over flushed on those hands or over straighted on those hands. But you do want to play hands that will make a nutted hand like pairs and suited aces and you know a lot of suited broadways you would probably want to play as well so i think you're sort of a little bit tighter but a little bit so you're not like 
a lot of people will just call. Someone will raise and they'll call early in a tournament because they have so many chips. And you should probably just play a little bit tighter and either fold or raise instead of just calling unless your hand can make the nuts, right? So I think people play too many hands early in tournaments. And I also think, you know, when you flop something, the thing is when you flop something like hot pair, top kicker, are you comfortable getting in 100 big blinds? Probably not if that's all you have and it's and all the chips are going in. But if you've got 30 big blinds, totally okay to get in with top pair, top kicker. So people can end up spewing a lot of chips early, whereas they, you know, later in the tournament. Like I just find, I find it difficult to play in the early stages because I've never been a cash game player. And I'm, I, I feel like I spew chips around doing exactly those kinds of things. So what they wanted, they sort of were guiding us to do was instead of calling, just either fold or raise. So if you have King Jack offsuit and instead of calling, just raise. Or if you have Queen Jack suited, like instead of calling, just raise it. You know, so uh, maybe some more of that. We'll see tonight from me. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> uh, Keith? Yeah, uh, I, I agree with Kim in that hand selection is pretty important. Uh, and you don't want to get stuck in, uh, in, in call, basically playing bingo with the rest of your bingo players that you're sitting there with. You you want to win those pots. and you, Because, like, say, if you're sitting there in the first level and you got 200 big blinds in your stack, <clears throat> do you want to get 200 big blinds in with bottom set when the guy wants to play real bad? Is that a is that a cooler or is that a misplay? That's a, I think that's a fair question. Mm-hmm. Red chip poker. I remember a podcast years back where they said a hundred big blinds. That's a cooler 200 big blinds. You misplayed it. That's a, that's a, a, a problem. And there's other hands like that, uh, that you can get in for 200 big blinds and make a mistake because you have a flush. Uh, like, like Chris said, I think that your most important work in the early stages of the tournament is uh, just watching the other players. If you're playing live, mm. look and see what, how they see the game. Uh, if there's any tells, that's the time to learn about their folding tells, especially the, the person on your left is holding his two cards a little above the table when he plans to fold or whatever their tell is. Uh, this is the time to do it uh, so that you can take advantage of it later. But uh, I think you will play more hands in the early levels of a tournament than you would in a cash game, even if for say a hundred big blinds, because the cash game is raked and you don't want to play the some mm. marginal type hands. You don't want to get into marginal hands when you're going to have to pay a rake to play them. So that's, you play very tight ranges in a cash game in the spewier your, your game, the, uh, the, the tighter your ranges need to be, but we're talking about tournaments here, but you know, so that's a, that's another point entirely, but yeah, you don't want to sit there and limp behind with six other players, you know, so that the dealer says six, we got six players and he out, out comes the flop and you're one of those six. You don't want to get in those situations. That's bingo. Yeah. I really like that point, Keith, about sort of recognizing how interested your, um, how interested your opponent is in the hand. And when you're playing big, big pots, you know, set over set, flush over flush, 
uh, like Tim was saying there, those kind of spots can come up. And so uh, knowing when to pot control and when to when to push, uh, it makes a big difference when stacks are deep. And like Chris says, you know, you might not even when stacks start getting short, how many hands have meaningful betting patterns right through the river when you're starting with 20 or 30 big blinds? It's hardly any of them. Um, so you really so that's another thing about early tournament levels is arguably there's a bit more of a skill edge to the experienced players because they have a lot more post-flop play in order to see what mistakes the less experienced players are making and to capitalize on that. So um, that makes a lot of sense. And Keith, I like your note about uh, sort of taking notes on players and getting a sense of those baselines for the tells that we might use later to find out whether they're strong or weak. Um, I think it was a solve for why was it Matt at solve for why that had that really excellent seminar on different tournament stages and uh, how you get more aggressive in different different ones. Um, I'm sure that'll be a theme of uh, of what we're going over for the next few months. Um, one of the things that's kind of evolved a little bit is the the notion about ICM not being a factor at all in early tournament stages. I know if Rob Washam was here, he would talk about how in their book study recently they've gotten into sort of the fact that ICM is a factor. It's just not a big factor. It's not something that should be impacting your ranges or your sizings as much early in the tournament. But you do still don't want to lose here. You know, you don't want to lose that bottom chip. It's still valuable. Um, panelists, I wonder uh, when it comes to like rebuy tournaments or re-entry tournaments, do you guys uh, and gals have a different approach to how risk averse you get in them or to are you willing to shove lighter or to call lighter or to take more flips uh, when it's a rebuy or a re-entry as opposed to a freeze out? I know theoretically we should be treating each rebuy, each buy-in as its own separate investment. Um, but practically speaking, I'd love if anyone here's um, in, in this position, do you feel like you get a little looser um, or more gambly if it's a rebuy? Or maybe as the as the rebuy period's about to close, if you get to a really short stack, is there some argument for trying to run it up a bit? Because if you bust, you can still re-enter and get maybe even a bigger stack than um, than you're playing right now. John? Um <clears throat> I, I don't know that it makes any mathematical sense. In other words, I don't know that it's a plus EV mode move. But if I'm at, particularly if it's been a while since I've played, I'm sitting at the uh, place and I'm looking to play poker, and I know that it's very likely that I'm just about ready to bust shortly after the rebuy period, I will push it that last 10 to 15 minutes to try to build up a working stack or rebuy again, assuming that the tournament is a small buy-in value. So it's, you know, not going mm -hmm. to be a significant amount and things like that. And I don't think that is plus EV, but it may be plus life EV. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> I like that. Well, and I think I do the same thing. And I mean, what people will tell us, John, I think is that we're not appreciating the value that our stack has that even having a short stack is valuable and we shouldn't like throw it away the chance of getting a bigger stack. But I mean, ultimately that's what, that's what we're doing. Every time we go all in with a short stack, we're gambling it away on the chance to get a bigger stack. Chris, that, uh, what do you have to say? Well, one thing I would say about the rebuy thing is it's, it's, I mean, we should sort of know what we're going to 
try to, you know, how many were willing to fire into a whatever. But I think one of the biggest things to be able to discern is maybe not like, am I going to get more gambly? What's going to help me decide that is if I can tell, or if I already know that there are players at my table who are trying to re like they're they're they want to run it up or rebuy, right? Yeah. So they're going to have a completely different strategy to somebody who's just hoping to like find the good hands, survive, get through, make the bubble, make the money versus somebody who's just, they've got five buy-ins in their pocket and they're, they're ready to fire. Those are, that is really helpful to know because those against that player, I'm much more likely to call down lighter to, um, you know, take some take chances against them. Take those ones that might be flips. I'm proud in some of those cases. I'm maybe dominating where I think I should only be flipping, and mm-hmm. so those are the kinds of things I want to be sort of aware of if I can figure them out. Uh, Joe, you unmuted for a second there. Do you have something you wanted to add? No, I mean I think it was very similar to what Chris said. Is that it, it's almost this weird kind of bubble effect when that time kind of rolls in because you just mm-hmm. kind of look around the table and see, well, who's got the short, short stack? Who's likely to try to force something that if I if I hit a hand that maybe I can pick up some some EV and if I bust, then, then I can rebuy if I want. So I do think there's some weirdness to it. And if you treat it sort of like a bubble, you, you might be able to uh, bully some people around that who might come in, even, even if you're like, I would, I would presume that if you, and you know, panelists tell me if I'm wrong, but if you're a big stack, you know, bullying some people around might not be a terrible thing uh, at that particular point in the tournament. So. Keith. Yeah. Uh, one point I want to add is just the overall management of your bankroll that way. If, uh, if you traveled for a tournament, like if say you traveled mm. out to Las Vegas, uh, it's expensive to travel there. You might want to take more chances because if you bust out and can rebuy, that's like getting more tournaments for your travel buck. You're spreading your travel. It's like tr- spreading your travel expenses across several tournaments. That doesn't mean you make fishy, spewy plays, but you know consider making more big plays than you normally would say in your home game that's cool i like joe joe's uh it's actually like an anti-bubble isn't it joe it's like the instead of people tightening up people start getting a little spewy so we're in like the the anti-bubble maybe has that been trademarked yet let's see <laughs> anti-bubble <laughs> i i did i did want to say you know something along the lines of keith's um comment which i think is more in my wheelhouse than uh tournament poker but um yeah, from a psychological standpoint, I think from, or, you know, consider what you, when you go on a long trip, consider what it is that you want first to gain from this trip, right? And and plan for how much that you want to fire at a tournament. Because the problem with firing bullets at a tournament is there can be no end. And even though tournaments are, you know, limiting your exposure and more so than cash, um, the variance is so much higher. If you start firing away, you can very quickly find yourself blowing through money um, and not having much advantage over that. And if what you really want is 
you know, to play maybe late reg for the tournament or something else so that it can limit it, but just have a good idea in terms of what it is that you want to do at that bubble, because it can be very tempting once you've busted to simply fire that bullet again. And it may be money that you just didn't intend to spend on poker at that point. Yeah, great, great point. Uh, particularly online. Well, I, I guess the pros and cons for online and, and live in those cases, it's much easier to register again online. But uh, live, you you know, you have to drive home if you don't. <laughs> so that's a different, different incentives. And uh, the last thing I did want to talk about, unless anyone else on the panel has anything they want to add here, is the notion that Joe just brought up about late registration, late registering. Um, so this is something that uh, people have studied this a lot. I think you might actually be plus EV. Most players are going to be plus EV to register late with a shorter chip stack. Um, a lot of players have already busted by the time you're getting close to the end of registration. So those are all players that you don't have to beat. It's true that you've got a shorter chip stack, but you know if you're worried about not being the most skilled or experienced player at the table, um, having a shorter chip stack kind of neutralizes that advantage that the savvier, more experienced, better players have. So that's, there's nothing wrong with that either. Um, you don't get to experience the time spent in the tournament for as long. And so something like the main event or some other prestigious thing or one of your first tournaments or something like that, I'd already always encourage folks to, to register on time and enjoy the whole thing. But once you've you know played a few tournaments and you're really looking to kind of like improve your hourly rate and, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of arguments for, for registering late. I know it's become a more sort of strategically sound tactic that a lot of uh, a lot of players are using so that's just uh the tip of the iceberg oh here joe uh, one more thing before we go yeah i was just going to say that um when you're looking on advice online keep in mind where it's coming from because i think a lot of times people get very wrapped up in a particular line of advice that doesn't take what jim was saying into account concerning whether life ev versus financial ev makes sense late registering for a tournament means you may not play for very long but then, you know, for a lot of pros, they're like, well, I'm done. I can, I, you know, I, I fired my bullets and I'm done for the day. Whereas if what you're doing, as Keith said, was to drive up and play for a long time, well, that's not going to be very enjoyable for you. And you may want to register more early. So just be very clear in terms of what you want and then make sure you know when the advice is coming in about late registering, where it's coming from and what they think your goals are uh, for uh, your poker play. Great, great uh, clarification, Joe. And we do have one more uh, comment in the chat here from Ben Enslow uh, talking about early tournament stages and playing deep stack. He says, I get too sticky with those kind of hands like King Jack offsuit and 7-6 suited when I make a pair and I lose chips that way. And that's right. And this is something I want to reinforce to all everyone who's playing deep stack poker. One pair is not your friend and you don't play a hand like, and I know Ben knows this, but um, uh, just for everyone else who's listening. You don't play seven six suited to make a pair. Making a pair is usually a terrible outcome when you <laughs> when you play seven six suited, and that goes for all these kind of middle pair no kicker hands. You really need to crush uh, two pair plus for that. That's why you're trying to make straight draws and flush draws that you can play aggressively on future streets. Um, and uh, you know Kim's got the really excellent point about doing it with those ace high flush draws, those king high flush draws, uh, like king queen suited ace. Uh, wheel aces, that kind of thing that can make them nuts, and pocket pairs that can uh, make sets that are very, very difficult to eat. So that's uh, that's all good advice about um, deep stack poker. One pair, it, you, you can look at this yourself. I'll just say one more short tangent. 
if you're uh, looking in Poker Tracker yourself, you can see the you can query your database to see the tendencies of your player pool. And typically, what happens is that one pair is a winning hand that pots up to forty or fifty big blinds. And then after that, once you're pl playing pots for more than 50 or 60 big blinds, one pair starts to show up as a loser as often as it shows up as a winner when you get to showdown. And hands like two pair plus start to become winners at pot sizes like that. And like Keith was saying earlier, if someone wants to play a big pot with you, they probably have one pair of beat. They might even have two pair of beat. They might even have bottom set beat. And so you really got to think about um, what is the, what is the, relative strength of your hand for the situation and not the absolute strength of your hand. Uh, one more comment from uh, Luke O in the YouTube chat says, I find early reg gives you more chance to wait for that nutted hand and get stacks in against someone who is firing a bullet. Yeah, exactly. If you get a sense of like who's out there to go and take the stab and you can pick your spots and if it's a nice structure and you're deep and you can afford to fold for a while and wait for those nutted hands or those extremely strong hands, that's exactly it. And one thing that's come out of this conversation from a bunch of people, I think, is the importance of knowing what your opponents are thinking about. Are they thinking about doubling up? Are they thinking about busting and going home? Um, and how's that going to affect who you can apply pressure against and who you can't? So, uh, Chris, thank you so much for um, putting these amazing uh, deep dive seminars together. Uh, this one is early stages. I'm going to go out in a limb and say that the theme of the month in September is a slightly later stage than early stages. I'm getting the nod. Well, yeah, because wait, I'm I'm so lost. So this is the this is yeah, is this coming up in no August is the one we're we've already put in the can. This is coming out in September, right? The, the oh yes, early, yes, sorry, yes, yes, that's right. So then yes, so October will be uh <laughs> <laughs> those those next stages of the tournament. All right. And if anyone's listening to this podcast and it didn't come out in the right month, you can send your complaint email to jim at rec.poker. Um, let me know and I'll try and uh, line this up better for next time. But um, yeah, we, we do record these uh, uh, forums editions slightly out of sync with the rest of them. So it's possible that I get the dates wrong every once in a while. But um, this was a good one. Uh, thanks, Chris, for all you do for putting this stuff together. Um, thank you to Keith and Kim and John and Joe for participating. Um, it's fun to do these on YouTube. So thanks to uh, Phil and Luke and Ben uh, for chatting along in there. Thanks, of course, to the Running Aces Hotel Racetrack and Casino. And to you, the listeners. You're the best. We'll see you again next week. Thanks for tuning in.